What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by a very, very special guest, Kayfabe. So if you've been around me and you've been around the Twitter spaces on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Kayfabe is a regular, and he always brings the heat when it comes to macro. He's a self-taught macro guy, investor, and what have you, uh, 25 years plus. Uh, So he's been through a lot of different cycles. He brings in a ton of crazy good insight and, you know, he relates it back to what's going on right now. So be sure to give it a listen and give him a follow at Kayfabe Capital on Twitter and check out his Substack where he's putting out some amazing work. And all of that is in the show notes as well. So if you want to check that out, you can go ahead and click there. But as always, ladies and gents, this is not financial advice. So be sure to not take it as such, because both Kayfabe and I are not financial advisors, and everything expressed in this podcast is strictly for entertainment purposes only, and is our opinions, and is not the opinions of anybody that you should take financial advice from, because it is strictly our opinions. So be sure to give it a listen, check me out on Twitter, like, subscribe, etc., etc., Tell your friend to tell a friend, and now let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What's up, everybody? I am back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, but first, I'd like to thank my sponsor, Inverse. Inverse is a social and collaborative investment research platform. Companies like Robinhood have increased the access to financial markets, while Inverse is increasing the access to high-quality investment research and discussion. Their entire platform is built around top-notch data and tools to help you analyze over 10,000 stocks and ETFs seamlessly embedded into one single platform. And in the coming weeks, you'll be able to link your brokerage account and share your portfolio performance to maximize that credibility when you're writing and analyzing various stocks and ETFs. And it'll also allow you to use their clean portfolio analytics tools to help you analyze a little bit of your portfolio and really take a look in the mirror and see how good or bad you really are doing. And I myself have been using the Inverse platform for quite some time now, and I deeply, deeply enjoy it. I actually have a Green Candle Investments group. And so if you join the Inverse platform, be sure to join my group and uh, post everything you got going on in there. And yeah, we could have a good discussion right on that platform. And now I have a very special guest. Uh, You might have heard him a few times on the Twitter spaces on Tuesday nights. We have KFAB. KFAB, how are we doing today? Um, Well, thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So you've got a very interesting uh, name on Twitter and a picture of Ric Flair as your avi or, you know, digital or whatever, your your uh, picture on Twitter. And uh, yeah, so tell me the, about the inspiration behind, uh, you know, it seems like a lot of uh, wrestling and professional wrestling is, uh, is the inspiration behind the account. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, historically, I've had very few original ideas. I I like to cobble together other people's ideas into a broader mosaic, um, which is probably why macro, uh, generally, um, analytics uh, and analyzing things through the macro lens appeals to me. 
so the idea was actually inspired by an analytical framework um, from a guy named Eric Weinstein that some people may have come across on Twitter. He's kind of been prominent in um, what they call the intellectual dark web with people like Sam Harris, et cetera. Um, he works at Teal Capital. I think he's a managing director at Teal Capital. But um, so he, he actually wrote an essay back, I think it was in 2011, kind of introducing this idea of analyzing um, contemporary culture and politics through the lens of professional wrestling and how we'd kind of been drifting towards um, that paradigm. And there was a, there's a gentleman on Twitter named Jake Orthwine who put together these really tremendous videos that were released last year, um, that, that explored this analytical framework from Weinstein. And when I saw those, it kind of, uh, planted a seed as far as, um, cause I'd been thinking about starting uh, a Substack and a, an associated Twitter account. Uh, in preparation for what I thought was going to be a very important um, period in markets in the global economy and really geopolitically. Um, so th that kind of all came together fortuitously uh, last uh, fall, uh, really kicked off the idea in September. And then from there, it was kind of figuring out how I wanted to do it. Um, but just to, so that's the background, but kayfabe is, is um, actually is derived from carnival speak or carny speak, what they, as they say. Um, and, and it's, it's basically, um, how wrestling, professional wrestling evolved from a legitimate sport into entertainment and, uh, the mechanisms and really the framework in which they layer reality with fake, um, and how they create this kind of delusional environment where the audience at times can get be confused as to what they're experiencing, what is real, what is fake. And uh, the reason why I picked Ric Flair was inspired by the, I think it was the 30 for 30 that they did on him. Um, and if you look at his life, his biography, he basically started out as this regular guy, married with kids. And as his career progressed, he almost endured kayfabe, meaning that his life became kayfabe itself, uh, where he became the character and kind of dipped in and out of reality of his actual life um, and almost mutated into Ric Flair away from who he actually was. And it was this evolution. Um, so I, I, I thought he epitomized this kind of uh, uh, this concept. So that's basically uh, the background. That's what inspired it. And um, if you watch the videos, uh, and I, all you need to do is go to YouTube and search um, Eric Weinstein kayfabe and they'll come up. Uh, there's two of them. The, the third is uh, on the way. I think that, that Jake released a, uh, a preview in, into the third um, chapter, let's call it, of, of the series. But it, all of this will make a lot more sense if you watch those videos. Um, and, and so, yeah, that's the background. Yeah, I, I watched a couple of those videos and I was reading through your background on your Substack as well. And I think it's it's pretty interesting. So, um, you know, just to, uh, it's, you said you have over 25 years of just self-taught experience over, you know, the full macro environment, stock investing, everything like that. So, you know, you've seen everything from you know, the, the dot-com boom to, um, you know, the 2008 uh, financial crisis and now this COVID situation. So I think you have a really, really unique perspective on, you know, everything that's going on 
not only, you know, previously, but, but right now as well. So why don't you get into a little bit of like the, your journey investing and how you got started? Yeah. So my uh, awareness of the stock market began when I was a child and my mother and I used to gamble and I don't mean that for money, but we used to have a bet each night between the two of us when Peter Jennings, ABC nightly news would come on about whether the Dow was up or down that day. Uh, so that, that's how I remember the stock market as, as uh, kind of my first awareness of it. And I, I made my first investment um, when I believe I was 13 or 14 in a mutual fund. Um, and then I went to university for finance and uh, got out and tried to get in the investment management industry um, and, and really had a, a non-traditional path in that regard. Ended up becoming an analyst at a registered investment advisor and um, progressing to be a, a portfolio manager and a strategist. And I did that for a number of years. Um, so that that's basically the 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 main background. And that, that started kind of in the early to mid 90s, that process. And then um, really what transformed how I analyze things um, and, and really what I've done is sit in a room by myself for 20 years. That that's So I never worked at a, at a you know, on quote unquote Wall Street. Um, when I say I'm self-taught, that's purely, I, I'm like a, uh, my, my, my intellectual path was conceived in the internet era. So just as the internet became ubiquitous in the 90s, I was kind of plugging in, so to speak, and teaching myself these things. And uh, that just happened to coincide with, you know, establishment Wall Street types getting online. Uh, and in those days, it was, you know, the street.com. And um, that was like an, a beacon of places where hedge fund managers and uh, analytical people, a lot of the people that are still active on FinTwit, actually, um, uh, people like Helene Meisler and Bill Fleckenstein and some of those people that started uh, back in the 90s and, and the street.com was kind of the, the center point of that. So that just that process began an awareness. I didn't do it on my own, so to speak. It was more of a kind of like the the genesis of FinTwit, um, where you can learn so much from you know, really smart, sophisticated people. I was at the kind of birth of that on, on the internet. And um, so in the late nineties, as, as I began to become a, a, you know, someone who was responsible for other people's money, um, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do from a, a strategic perspective to deal with what I thought was coming, uh, coming out of the, the internet bubble, which was, you know, what they call a secular bear market. And that started this journey down, you know, and what does that mean? Well, like, you know, things like the S&P and the Dow don't make a new high for a decade or more. That's kind of what, you know, like we had from 66 to 82 and from 29 to 48 or whatever it was or 52, I forget. But so how do you invest in that kind of environment? And that, that led me down this kind of heterodox path. Um, and, and that's what I've laid out on the Substack. It's been a journey. Uh, there's been certain... Um, uh, uh, checkpoints along the way where major changes have occurred in how I view the world and how I analyze things. Um, but yeah, it's all been done kind of virtually in, in sitting in a, in a room by myself. Yeah. And I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of people um, get a little intimidated, especially when they go on places like FinTwit, because you see, you know, these people on there with 30, 40 years of experience and everything like that. And, uh, you know, we're seeing a pretty crazy environment, but 
you know, you're one of the more well-spoken people that I've talked to on, on FinTwit. And yeah, exactly. Like you said, it's just kind of uh, all self-taught and uh, you know, you list out quite a few books on your Substack that helped you uh, kind of get to the knowledge base that you're at and, uh, you know, kind of help you get that confidence. So is there any, um, you know, books that you strongly recommend for somebody kind of getting started and trying to get their feet wet when it comes to investing? Yeah. So I, I think that the, um, I've, I've listed the, the kind of the major books that were impactful, um, as I mentioned, kind of those inflection points. Um, but it, it is important to get the basics. Uh, so I, my, my academic training and some of my early career training was in more traditional securities analysis, fundamental analysis. And that is important things like valuations and, you know, uh, as Buffett would call it, the, me- the measuring, uh, machine, right. Um, so how do you weigh things and, and have a proper anchoring and, and reality, uh, again, with the, the theme of kayfabe. So, uh, you know, Ben Graham, the intelligent investor that that's, uh, you know, the, his original book from the 1930s securities analysis might be a little dense for most people. So intelligent investor is a good place to, to, to anchor with that. Um, for me, a seminal book was uh, Market Wizards, the original Market Wizards book by Jack Schwab, uh, Schwaber. I, I forget his name. I'm not good. I'm middle aged now. I, I've, I've uh, killed too many brain cells to have a great memory. But um, so that was that was published, I think, in 1989. And that was basically an interview book of the great traders and hedge fund managers up until that point. And I think that book's great because it teaches uh, or it, it can teach people about the importance of individuality. And I don't mean that in like a libertarian sense. I mean that there were so many different ways that the people in that book achieved the insane amount of success that they had. And there are some kind of basic underpinnings that stretch across the different people, but they all kind of did it in their own way. They all kind of had their own process and um, uh, how they grappled with the inherent uh, struggle that we all have, which is how, you know, we sabotage ourselves. We, you know, we're all these, uh, we're human beings making these terrible decisions based off of emotions. We're emotional animals. And, and that book really, um, goes through the different ways that, that, you know, people like, um, uh, uh, Bruce Kovner and, and, uh, Jim Rogers and, uh, you know, just a litany of, uh, Paul Tudor Jones, I think was in that. So, um, that, that was a huge book for me. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're, then you get into more of the esoteric and, um, um, well, I shouldn't say the esoteric. The, ne- the next one I would say is beating the business cycle by, um, ECRI. And I, and I talk about ECRI a lot because, um, they put out a book, I think it was in the early aughts and it basically went through their process of how they analyze business cycles. And I think that that is probably the most um, underappreciated analytical domain, um, relative to macro and investing. And I think it gets conflated with quote unquote economics, which is distinct. Uh, I think people get caught up in economics, like they get caught up in politics. You know, are you a Keynesian? Are you a monetarist? Are you an Austrian? You know, it's kind of like, are you a Republican? Are you a Democrat or a green party, whatever, um, and what ECRI does, e- Economic Cycle Research Institute, is they just analyze the business cycle. They're, they're more like, um, you know, like a scientific process of that. Um, whereas, you know, y- you get into 
most of economics is, I, I joke, it's like political science for people who like math or are good at math. Um, so uh, that book was important. And I started, again, I was introduced to their work on thestreet.com and um, started following their work and uh, subsequently subscribed to various products that they put out at different times. So I, I've been a, a, a long-term, over 20-year uh, devotee of, of their analytical framework. Uh, so that, that book's a way to get an introduction to how they see the world. Um, that, then a couple other books. So the other big kind of uh, uh, milestone that changed the way that I analyze things, um, I came across a book na uh, named Ubiquity um, by Mark Buchanan. And that was, as I joke, it was like complex systems for dummies. Um, and, and that's certainly me. Uh, I do not have any background in, in STEM. Uh, you know, I'm more of a rocks for jocks kind of guy academically. Uh, you know, t take the dumb science courses uh, for athletes, so to speak, uh, even though I wasn't a college athlete. But uh, so I never had like a high level physics class or a high level um, uh, biochemistry or anything like that. So uh, what, what that did is it introduced me to the basic concepts of complex systems analysis. And, and the next book is called How Nature Works, which is by Per Bach, which is an actual book for physicists. <laughs> um, and I can slog through that. But basically what that does is it builds out the more intellectual uh, framework for what Buchanan covers in his book. And, and um, that goes back to their work in physics in the late 80s, um, looking at uh, self-organizing criticality and how do complex systems actually work, the mechanics and the physics of it and the math behind it. Um, and I started you know, thinking about negotiated financial markets and really humanity through that lens and how we function as a this one big complex system. Um, and when I added that to how I analyze things, that really changed. That was a paradigm shift. Uh, and that was kind of in the 2005, 2006 period. Um, so th th those I think are, and then the last one is related to that is, um, misbehavior of markets by Benoit Mandelbrot and Mandelbrot was the godfather of fractal geometry. And that, that kind of is a piece of this complex systems puzzle, um, power law dynamics and fractals. And, and the way that in my mind, the way that works is really how to, how does price behave? Um, within the context of a complex system and, and how's it manifest. So that, that's kind of the litany that, that, that's a, a long-winded, but, um, pretty good comprehensive summation of, of, uh, my, my 25 years of an intellectual journey. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of things that you pointed out there, uh, are great. And I think everybody should probably check out all those books. I know like I'm adding those to my list for sure. But, you know, it, it, like you, uh, the way you ended it was in intellectual journey. So, uh, and I think that's a, that's a big part of it, right. Is like, it's all kind of like a learning experience. You know, you get up and you talk in these Twitter spaces and do all these things too, where you're still, you know, you're still learning and you're still curious. So, um, but I want to take it back to like the very early days. So when you first got started, um, you know, it says on your Substack here, you, you invested like a thousand dollars that you saved from college in a small cap mutual fund. And it was right around, um, you know, the, the time of the hot internet IPOs. So, you know, how did you, uh, I guess, view that time 
Um, and if you could kind of like, I guess, revert it back to, to right now, do you see a lot of similarities to, um, you know, kind of like the dot-com boom to, to what we saw, you know, maybe in the past couple of years, whether it was like, um, you know, a lot of these like Doge coins or like, you know, hot, like weed stocks or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, um, you know, probably the, the one, um, personality characteristic that I bring to the table that lends itself to this uh, kind of macro field, so to speak, is I'm very curious um, in a domain that I'm interested in. If I'm not interested in it, I'm horrible. That's why I wasn't a great student um, outside of things that I was interested in. And um, uh, really, I I try to figure out how things actually work. And um, I'm very kind of uh, cynical in that regard, meaning that I, I, I tend to, you know, trust, but verify is my mentality. Um, and, and I have a pretty decent BS detector. And, um, I, I think that's kind of, um, inherent. I think that's just how I was kind of born and raised, uh, actually my piece today, uh, that I just released on my Substack around eight o'clock, uh, this morning, uh, was, was, uh, framed nature versus nurture. All right. Uh, and, you know, I don't know what my nature was or how much was nurturing. Um, I do remember about the, th- the time that uh, I made that first investment. And it was actually I think it was 1990 or 91. Um, so it was a little before the IPO craze. Um, but I also like I grew up reading uh, the tables, the Wall Street pages and in the newspaper, they used to, used to get newspapers that had all the quotes and, you know, uh, the dividend yields and the, at the price movements. I looked through that and I looked through baseball card statistics and, you know, that that's, I was always, um, I always gravitated to numbers in that way through sports and, and, and finance. Um, and around that same time, I remember the Herschel Walker trade, which probably predates you. Um, but my, my, one of my good friends at the time, and he still is a Dallas Cowboys fan, and this was right after Jerry Jones bought the Cowboys and put in Jimmy Johnson as, as the coach, and they traded Herschel Walker for this just litany of, of draft picks uh, coming off. I think they were 1-15 that season. Uh, and I told my friend, um, they're going to win the Super Bowl before we graduate high school. And this was coming off a 1-15 season, which you know, saying something like that was just outrageously nuts. Um, and they did, they won the Super Bowl not too long after that, before we graduated from high school. Uh, so I'm just kind of wired this way. I, I think it's, you know, um, uh, so I, I always kind of question and what you learn very quickly, if you're built like I am, is that wall street is full of it. Uh, a lot of what wall street puts out, it, wall street is the epitome of kayfabe. Um, you know, they, they sell something that's not true. I mean, that they sell, that they're trying to do what's in the best interests of the clients. And actually what they're doing is in their financial interests. Um, they're pretending to help you, but really what they're doing is helping themselves. Um, and so I, I, I grasped that fairly early in my journey. Um, in, in once I kind of got out into the professional world, because um, a lot of it just didn't make sense to me. I kind of saw through the veneer very quickly. Uh, and that's why I didn't last long in kind of the institutional corporate world. I, I made it about uh, 20 months uh, and got the heck out of there quick because I knew it wasn't for me. Um, and yeah, so the late 90s was was that was when behavioral finance was really kind of um, becoming the in vogue. So I, I, I learned about that and, and tried to use it as an analytical framework. Um, 
you know, realizing that the efficient market hypothesis was nonsense, that people aren't rational. Um, and, and that opened up this whole skepticism that I had on modeling that came out of Wall Street, whether it was uh, asset allocation modeling based off of efficient markets or economic modeling based off of rational consumers. Like it's all nonsense. Uh, and, and what I figured out is I started ripping these modeling apart. It was like they almost always had at least one just patently ridiculous assumption. Um, and, and that, you know, w w was kind of laid the groundwork for this in kind of inherent skepticism. So there's always these echoes of, of history and, you know, manias and, um, the human condition, like the things haven't really changed Our our brain chemistry hasn't really evolved all that much in the last few hundred years. Uh, so, um, you know, th th the current period is analogous to the late nineties. It's analogous to the late twenties. It's analogous to, you know, the land boom in Florida and the, in the teens. I mean, um, you know, the railroad and canal manias in the 19th century, like this, the, 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 the tulip mania. Um, oh, that's another book I, I listened. I forgot was Charles Mackay's uh, popular delusions, delusions and the madness of crowds. So that's, that's a book from, I think it was published first in like, I don't know, I forget like 1842 or something, but it Mackay was a Scotsman who basically at that time went through history of manias and, and uh, panics South Sea Bubble, Mississippi Scheme, Salem Witch Trials, Tulip Mania, and and laid out, you know, the rhythm and the history of how these things play out. Um, so nothing's changed. And and um, you know, my my uh, George Noble, who I've gotten to know through these spaces, uh, he, he 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 says that a lot, which is, you know, um, there's there's nothing new under the sun, and and there isn't. Um, so yeah, there's a lot long winded way apologies, but a long, a, a lot of echoes through history of what we've seen in the last, um, really decade, the, the, the post global financial crisis era, um, you know, you can draw, I I've called it the, the, the all-star game of market manias because you can pull out a lot of, um, things from historical manias and we've, they've all kind of coalesced in this one epic global bubble. Um, so I'll stop there. Apologies. No, don't don't apologize. This is what this is for is for these long winded rants and and to kind of go through like, you know, your thought process and everything that you're thinking about and seeing um, but before we get into kind of like what's going on right now. Uh, you did mention in your like subsect preview, you know, uh, about investing through the 2008 financial crisis. And, uh, you know, I don't want to go into, you know, your your trades or anything like that. But, um, you know, it, it seemed like a lot of people were getting hammered extremely, extremely hard during that time, but you wound up relatively stable. So, you know, why don't you, uh, I guess, walk us through like kind of like your thought process during that time. And, uh, you know, I guess the overall just, just feeling of uh, while everything is kind of crashing and burning, like you just being able to, to maintain some stability in there. Yeah. So, um, that that's that was how the uh, my coming really stumbling across this area of complex systems. There was a hedge fund manager that I came across on um, on social media at the time um, was was talking in these these terms these these weird terms, and that that's actually how I came across Buchanan's book 
was was looking into what he was talking about. And um, so that was very fortuitous because uh, viewing markets and cycles through the lens of complex systems is really what allowed me to be prepared for 2007 and 8. Um, and, and one of the basic concepts in complexity is, is criticality. Um, you think about it, you know, the, there's a lot of easy analogies you can use to explain these. Um, and analogies are good for, you know, introducing concepts um, typically. So one of the basic ones is snow on a mountain, right? So as the snow piles up on the mountain, um, it, it, it creates pressure in the underlying system and it looks stable on the surface. But at some point, uh, if you start measuring the pressure in the mountain, you know, the snow of the mountain, it, it reaches avalanche warning levels. Um, and, and that the, the, the level of criticality in the system goes from kind of a normal, stable to hypercritical that still looks stable on the surface, but the underlying uh, system dynamics are highly unstable. And at some point, there's a catalyst that causes the avalanche to trigger. And that, that's another concept in complex system is the kind of inherent random and chaotic nature of them. Um, where it's very difficult to assess what's going to be the actual trigger. I joke, you know, is it going to be a, a snowboarder or a deer fart, right? Uh, you, you can't know you and, and spend, and I think a lot of people misallocate their time and resources trying to figure out whether it's going to be a deer fart or not and not focus on measuring the, the pressure in the mountain. Uh, it's it's the system dynamics that are of utmost importance. And in in 2004, five, six, what you um, metaphorically had was snow building up on, on the mountain in the mortgage market, in the financial system. And if you think of it through the lens of complexity, leverage is like snow. Uh, you know, uh, whether it's financial leverage, market leverage, um, embedded leverage relative to li liquidity. All of these factors create criticality and growth in that um, pressure in the system. And so basically I went from, um, you know, this traditional analytical framework of, you know, like are stocks cheap or expensive and drawing lines on charts and if the, you know, moving averages and, you know, so I explored all the kind of traditional charting and technical analysis and, and I still use some of that stuff as a complementary thing, but what the complexity did, it was understand that the importance was looking for evidence that an avalanche has begun. Because I think what people do oftentimes is they try to project um, when things are going to happen. And the problem with that is you can be Jeremy Grantham in 1998, who saw that it was a bubble forming, um, and you can reallocate based off of that. And then, you know, again, this goes back to uh, the, uh, the 1920s and the aftermath. I think it was Irving Fisher that said, uh, you know, markets can stay irrational for longer than you can stay solvent. Right. Um, I may have gotten that attribution wrong. Uh, but so the problem is, as you know, who's to say whether the mountain is going to go to a level that it's never gone before in um, criticality and, and piling up the snow? Um, so that that's one of the challenges that people have that are fundamentalists or even chartists is that they're perpetually kind of battling what are the um, uh, the, the potential of mania, right? What what are the what are the limits of human mania? And I think that's 
where seeing things through the lens of complexity helps. Um, and I've learned a lot on that. I continue to learn a lot on that. Um, that's a, that's a continuous battle. Um, but yeah, so basically I, I entered kind of the 06, 07 period on high alert for looking for evidence that an avalanche was beginning. Um, there was a little bit of a false start in 06, uh, some whipsawing that looked like it might've happened and then it, it stabilized and the, it started snowing again <laughs> and the, and the snow kept building on the mountain. Um, and then I, I think the seminal event that started the avalanche, so to speak, and, and this is also the challenge, which is, it's, it's, it's oftentimes by definition high up on the mountain and a lot of people can't see it and aren't paying attention to it. But, um, late in 2006, the CDO market, uh, started to roll over. Uh, and then from there kind of down market, down mountain, so to speak, things started to get caught up in the avalanche. And there was, um, uh, there was a, a Chinese stock market mini crash in February of 07, where I think the Chinese market was down like 9% overnight. And that happened to coincide with what ultimately was the peak in the U.S. bank index and um, U.S. REITs. And then you had the Bear Stearns uh, mortgage hedge funds collapse in June. Uh, and then you had the, the quant blow up in 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 july and the fed emergency rate cutting and then you go down the timeline and then you had sock gen fail not fail but almost fail in january and then bear stearns and then fannie and freddie and so you go down the timeline as the as the um the snow started to cascade the avalanche started to cascade down the mountain it started to envelop more and more of of um what was going on and so basically my analytical framework was geared towards trying to look for signs of an avalanche uh, and then just apply some very basic. And when I say basic, I mean, basic um, power law calculations and looking for price dynamics that are, you know, uh, suggestive of, of, um, you know, a, 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 an avalanche or an earthquake unfolding. And, and they tend to have, this is where that fractal geometry comes in. Um, and power law dynamics. So you know, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and the setup suggested that it might be a duck, um, that that's basically how I did what I did. And uh, to your point, it, it was um, it was a very interesting human experience because I remember going out to dinner to kind of quote unquote celebrate with my wife and family. My kids were young at the time on New Year's Eve of 2008. Um, and I just posted a, you know, really, really good performance for the year, um, sitting by myself in a room, uh, and I, I'd, I'd achieved what I'd hoped for my clients and, you know, kind of, um, protected them and actually made money in a year when everyone else was down 30, 40, 50, 60%. And I was miserable. I was exhausted. Uh, and this, this goes back to another kind of concept within, complex system is we're all part of the same system. Like, even though I was doing well, I was still experiencing the exact same thing that everyone else was, is this kind of organic human experience of panics and manias. So I was able to, because of this analytical framework that I had built, I was able to make good decisions in that context, but my limbic system was still operating like everyone else's was. My programming was still the same. I, I was still running the same algorithm emotionally. And I, I wasn't able to disconnect from that. 
Um, so it was this weird experience of doing well on an investment side and trading side, but through the lens of just like day-to-day -day experience, it was horrible because there was so much pain and suffering and, and fear and anxiety. And, and it's just almost impossible to unplug yourself from that. Um, so that was a, quite the learning experience, um, in, in going through that, that, that period. But, um, but yeah, and then the cycle turn, and we'll talk about that, I think, as we go into what's going on now, but, you know, cycles do, um, cycle, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. And, uh, the, the, the economy started to stabilize and forward leading indicators started to turn back up in the first couple of months of, of Oh nine. And, you know, um, uh, the, the upswing had begun. So it, it was uh, about reorienting back towards, you know, an upswing in the cycle. Um, so, yep. Yeah. And I mean, just like you said, right, cycles kind of go through exactly, you know, what it what it is, a cycle, right? So that kind of leads us into what what's going on now, right? So we saw the huge run up in the, you know, 20, uh, 2000, uh, you know, 2012, 2011, or so, up until, you know, right around 2020, with the COVID crash, um, it seemed like everything like money was super cheap. Uh, obviously, you know, it was kind of a black swan event of sorts, where the entire world economy kind of got shut down. Um, but, uh, you know, how do you, I guess, view the the overall times that we're in right now? Because I think uh, the sentiment that I get, a lot of times talking to a lot of people on FinTwit is majority of them are are still are, are kind of thinking like, hey, we're, we've seen the bottom and we're already starting to come up. Um, but, you know, from my general sense, I feel that we're still kind of, uh, you know, ways away from the bottom and that it's going to take a while for us to to swing back up unless, you know, there's some massive amounts of money printing or there's there's kind of like a Fed pullback. So, uh, I'd be curious to hear, you know, what you kind of see uh, and where you think we are uh, in the market cycle right now. Yeah. So um, before anyone listening starts to think that um, my poop doesn't stink or I think that my poop doesn't stink because of the success that I had in in um, 2007, 2008, um, that laid the groundwork for my most important um, learning experience as a human being, uh, which was epic failure. And, uh, that success laid the groundwork for something else that I, I, I write about in, in the introduction to my, my Substack, uh, which is that I experienced a horrible meltdown in 2013. Uh, and one might think, well, how the hell could you do that? That was an easy year to invest. And it should have been. Um, but uh, I, I basically never experienced um, any kind of sustained bout of failure in my life. Pretty much any time that I, uh, you know, dedicated myself to something and put effort into it, I had been able to kind of do what I wanted to. Um, and, you know, coming into 2011, for example, um, you know, I, or I'm sorry, 2010, even I was flat for the flash crash. Right. So how the hell did you know the flash crash? Well, I didn't, but I saw like an avalanche happening in my process and I got flat. So I, you know, on a, on a day when almost everyone got caught in, in this flash crash, I, I wasn't. And then in 2011, I was, 
uh, I made a, a, probably the biggest month of my career was August of 2011. Um, because I was positioned for the, the quote unquote avalanche that took place then, which was surrounding the, the, um, the debt ceiling. And there was concern at the time that the U S was actually going to default on its debt and the markets got hammered and, and short term. But again, I was positioned for it. Uh, and then I was positioned in spring of 12 for, um, the, the, the currency, uh, debacle that was unfolding in Europe because of this was right before the Draghi will do anything that it takes speech in July of, of 2012. So I thought my poop didn't stink. I had reached a point of confidence and arrogance um, in, in my ability as opposed to my process that I had built. And that is an important distinction. Um that I'll, I'll segue into here as it relates to the current environment, um, that when we went, entered late 2012 into 13, I had a very specific macro view, the way the market and uh, the, the business cycle was going to play out. And when I was wrong, and when I say I was wrong, I was wrong big time. I completely screwed it up. Um, I had the entire framework off uh, that I triggered cognitive dissonance um, and went into this parallel state of reality and, and proceeded down this path of confirmation bias and could not get myself out of it and ended up blowing up uh, my strategy and had a really bad year uh, to the point where, uh, you know, that, that chapter in my career ended <laughs> and I needed to get out of it. I lost 40 pounds. I was depressed. I wasn't sleeping. Uh, it was it was basically 18 months of hell, a cognitive, as I would call it now. I had my own cognitive avalanche. I, I had this, um, again, through the lens of complex systems, I built up hypercriticality in my own brain of being an arrogant prick. And uh, the avalanche took my in co entire cognition down with it. And um, uh, so that learning experience and kind of decompressing from that and figuring out what went wrong um, uh, led to the next chapter in, in my analytical development, which is researching human cognition. Um, and again, I write about that in my Substack. which the, some of the breakthrough stuff that I, I reached and kind of figuring some of that stuff out just happened to precede the 2016 election when, um, the entire world or, or more specifically the United States entered cognitive dissonance where you had, uh, you know, and, and there's somebody who I, I, I again stole this analogy from. Uh, it's uh, uh, one screen, two movies, right? Literally half the country thinks that we're governed by Hitler, and the other half of the country thinks that we're governed by someone who's uh, a working man's hero, right? And I'm not making any political judgment. That's irrelevant. But but the the fact that reality almost broke in 2015 and 2016. And we're still living with that, by the way. Um, I, I, I kind of was almost like my complex systems journey starting in 05, 06 had me ready for 07 and 08. Um, this path of my own cognitive meltdown and then trying to figure that out helped me kind of had this analytical framework to better figure out what's going on, not only in markets, but more importantly in humanity. <laughs> um relative to how things are all kind of unfolding in the era of Trump. And um, so that that 
really had me ready for the pandemic in in many ways. Um, and and um, so I, I feel like I have this very very robust analytical framework that as long as I don't allow my own stupidity to screw it up, um, if I just follow my process and follow what my analytical framework is is telling me, um, then you know I've I've learned to trust that that that's really the what's paramount to me now. Um, so that's to, to your point, and, and that's really why I started this, this Substack and, and the Twitter account is because I have so much confidence in that process. Um, no, and it, it's not mechan- it's not mechanistic. It's it's not you know a, a formula. It's not an algorithm. Um, it's it's a it's it's been built with this concept of robustness, which again is another concept from complexity. Um, uh, that. You know, I, I felt like I could help people in a way that uh, open up windows and figuring out how to navigate this environment because it is so difficult um, to, to get this kind of cycle and these kinds of issues um, navigated and, and to do it in a way to survive really is the first um, objective. And if you can profit from it, you know, you know, if you if you can be the uh the john paulson or you know the uh uh you know some of the other people that really uh, benefited financially from the mortgage meltdown and the 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 era of 2007 through 2009 all the better but more importantly um in my mind it's about trying to help people that are getting really bad advice really bad um you know part of the wall street machine so to speak uh, and they're, they're, you know, they're going to just get harmed irreparably. Um, if, if, in my view, anyway, my judgment, if, if they go down kind of the conformist traditionalist path. Um, so that, that's basically what I've been doing since I started the account, uh, what's about 10 months ago now, um, and trying to kind of lay out what this framework is, lay out what, what it's telling me, um, knowing that I'm still human and I'm still, you know, subject to, cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias and an awareness of that is the first step. But, um, you know, I, I think what we're seeing now is a lot of, of that happening in, in FinTwit, uh, people having anchored views and then getting triggered and then confirmation biasing their way into certain things. Um, and again, I've been there, I've done that. And it's possible that I might be doing it again. I uh, have to have that humility. Um, based off of what I've been through, but I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in what my process is indicating. And it, it's, it's unfortunately not good. It's very frightening, actually. Um, it's very disturbing, actually. But, you know, it, as I like to say, it's, it's better to deal with reality um, and try to fortify, you know, your family, your, your personal situation, do what you can to help others. Um, but ultimately, you know, kind of hoping and denying what's going on, I think is, is, um, unwise. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. And I think, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot to kind of unpack there, but, uh, you know, I think the big part is that, like you said, like not trying to fall into the trap of the confirmation bias and, you know, uh, you know, just continually learning and challenging your ideas, your beliefs, your methodology to kind of, uh, I guess, help strengthen that um, and to kind of help you get through, you know, crazy and wild roller coaster times like like we are today. Um, 
so, you know, on that note, like, you know, we're, we're seeing kind of like the avalanche uh, almost uh, starting or, or already having started with, you know, Europe with a, with a massive energy crisis, uh, massive amounts of inflation all over the globe. Um, so, you know, on, on that note, like kind of how do you see, you know, policy wise that, that we get uh, a way out of here? Do you see it like being kind of, uh, I guess, a bloody recession to maybe a depression? Or do you think, you know, uh, that, that maybe we kind of float sideways for a bit as we kind of have a little transition from this massive in- amounts of inflation and we try to, you know, I guess, uh, crawl our way out of it. Um, yeah. How do you kind of see this all like playing out? Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll, b- given how much I've bloviated up until now, I think I can be more concise in, in walking through the elements of, um, you know, like the, the four legs of my analytical table. Uh, so from a complex systems perspective, we entered this period um, in another, you know, a, a concept to uh, borrow from macroeconomics here is initial conditions. So the initial conditions entering this period were um, probably the most extreme in history, meaning that the amount of debt, the amount of leverage in the system, um, not only uh, economic leverage, but financial leverage, the amount of derivatives, for example, uh, the amount of gross exposure that is embedded in the marketplace uh, has never been larger. So if you think about the analogy of snow on the mountain, we've got an F ton amount of snow on the mountain, or we did, uh, you know, kind of 12, 18 months ago, coming out of the, 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 the response to the pandemic. Um, so that's the initial condition, right? So that's going back to, um, you know, what, what I'd said in, in talking about the, the complex systems aspect is that means the system's hypercritical. That means that you should be on the lookout for an avalanche. Okay. Park that. Um, well, has an avalanche started? Um, well, I would argue that uh, analogous to the CDO market starting to melt down in uh, December of 2006, which was kind of the first warning sign, uh, you started to see the high growth market, you know, the ARC names, the Kathy Woods type names, they peaked in February of 2021. And they started their avalanche then, just like kind of the CDO market did in, in 2006, late 06 into early 07. And from there, so that's way high up on the mountain, right? So if you think about this again, conceptually, that was high up on the mountain. And as that avalanche has started, just like you started to get the timeline in 07, where you had the, as I said, the Chinese banks and U.S. banks peaking, and then the Bear Stearns hedge funds, as the avalanche picks up steam and goes rolls down the mountain, it envelops more and more. And we've started to see more and more get enveloped in it. You had uh, various markets peak then in fall last year um, and uh, the U.S. market kind of being the last bastion peaking in, in January. Um, and the other part of this I'll say, and again, I've shared some of this actually on social media, is um, I started to identify um, you know, price behavior that suggests that an avalanche is occurring. So the one that I've shared quite a bit is on the German DAX. 
And I chronicled that in my Substack, and I've done it on Twitter dating back to December. So again, you can you can watch it kind of contemporaneously when I was doing it and show how uh, the German DAX's price was behaving almost like uh, an earthquake would. I mean, that very clear evidence of fractal scaling of of the price decline um, in, 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 a, in a power law sense. Um, so again, so you go back to my process, initial conditions. Is it hypercritical? Yes. A ton of snow on the mountain. Then do you start to see evidence of an avalanche? Yes. Then is that avalanche cascading? Is it picking up velocity? Is our power law dynamics starting to take place? Where, because again, mixed metaphors here, mixed analogies is, um, and, and I th- this is a good one to introduce because of the power law dynamic, um, is with earthquakes, right? Is it going to be a 2.0 earthquake? Because that does a certain amount of quote unquote damage, or is it going to be a 9.0? And, and, you know, again, for people who don't know the Richter scale, the Richter scale is exponential. It has power laws built into it. Um, so the difference between a, a 5.0 uh, earthquake and a 9.0 is not linear. It's not four points, right? There's a huge difference between those two. Um, and, and what I've started to see really this year was power law dynamics and scaling. And this is taking place again. Now let's go to the next leg of the table, um, which is the business cycle. And what I talked about with, with ECRI, um, clear evidence that the business cycle was rolling over and um, the objective uh, leading indicator-based process that they used uh, starting to show that a synchronized global recession was possible and now looks um, not only possible, but likely. I mean, it looks like that's actually happening. And why that matters is because um, that increases the risks of a 9.0, right? So again, I can't tell you, this is going back to this, what I mentioned earlier, the inherent chaotic and random nature of complex systems. So you can't know ahead of time whether it's going to be a 6.0, an 8.0, a 9.0. Uh, it's my, this is where the art comes in. It's my, and this is where I think my, that my process has some, um, you know, validity to it is, uh, looking at the business cycle dynamics and what that means relative to the, the, the feedback loop, the re- reflexivity of this and the potential for turning it into a much bigger quake or a much bigger avalanche, um, is, is significant. And, um, so that, that's, you know, the other leg of the table, the last leg is again, it has something, something to do with initial conditions, but it's more of the traditional, uh, financial background, the training, you know, the fundamentalist, which is things were just ridiculously priced, right? So the idea that things could go down 60% or 70% and still not be that cheap, um, that leaves a lot of room. So it's not like this is some kind of abstraction of a 9.0 happening. That also kind of fits, meaning that if something's trading at 100 times sales and it goes down 90%, it's still trading at 10 times sales. <laughs> That's still not cheap, generally speaking, right? You know, there's always exceptions. But um, so that, that leg of the table saying that, well, okay, 
this all kind of makes sense. This fits like that. This could happen. It's not, it's not that it would be crazy if it happens. So you have to, you have to, uh, be open mind. I'm not saying you, I'm, this is me talking to myself, right? You, you have to be open-minded to what the probability distribution is here. And it's not a normal distribution. It's heavily skewed to the left tail. And that's a, it's a big ass fat tail uh, in my judgment. That's what my process is telling me. Can't predict the future, but what you can also do is look at what my markets are pricing in. And in my view, markets are completely out to lunch. They are not pricing in reality. They're caught up in the kayfabe. Um, and, and most of investors are caught up in the kayfabe, which by the way is normal. It's a matter of degree. Uh, and this is why I go back to, um, you know, uh, the, the era of the Mississippi scheme and the South sea bubble. And, uh, I, I always like to go back to it because Isaac Newton, one of the smartest people that probably one of the smartest people ever lived, um, couldn't avoid being caught up in the mania, uh, and, and actually had sold his investment after making a huge return and then watching all of his buddies get super, super rich for a period of time. He, he got back in right at the top and then lost everything. Um, so if this, one of the smartest people that ever lived could get caught up in the mania and be delusional and, and hallucinate basically enter cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias. You know, I think that speaks to how inherent this is. Uh, it's part of the human condition. Um, and, and that, that's what I see unfolding around me. Like, like that's what this analytical process is suggesting to me is, is, is taking place. Um, and you know, the way this usually works is by the time most people figure out what's actually happening, that's when you're entering the panic phase. Um, and that, I think that's probably somewhere, you know, on the horizon, but again, I have the humility at this point, uh, that I've earned from, uh, being an idiot in the past, uh, at great cost to, you know, I've paid a, a heavy tuition is to learn these lessons is that, you know, the, the journey to get there is by definition, um, uh, organic, meaning that it, it's going to evolve the way it evolves, I, I can't predetermine what that's going to be. And that's when, I, when, you know, when I write about what I'm seeing, it's, it's always conditional. It's all because, um, these things are inherently random and chaotic. Uh, so, so to enter into it with some kind of high level of conviction, again, sets yourself up for, for cognitive dissonance. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to keep an open mind as far as the pathway uh, and there are certainly scenarios, who knows, you know, when the Fed eventually reverses course and central banks go berserk, which they probably will, and and fiscal authorities go berserk, which they probably will. Um, the question is the timing, the impact, what's going on in the system dynamics. All of these things are, are, are contingent and dependent on, you know, to use a football analogy, um, what's the field position? And, and to right now, the field position is terrible. Um, and, and, I, I, I think that's a hugely important part of where we're at in the cycle. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, that was a great breakdown and I really appreciate you kind of diving into your framework and, you know, what you're seeing right now. Um, but to wrap it up, I always like to ask one question because, you know, how crazy of an environment, you know, we've seen the past couple of years, 
what is a piece of advice that you have for a new investor who's starting to get in and kind of, uh, you know, trying to tread some of these uh, crazy waters? Yeah, I, I would say um, for a new investor, the most important thing is to learn um, and to avoid huge mistakes. So uh, the first thing to do is don't use leverage. Do not be trading options. Do not be trading futures. Um, if, you, if you're learning how to invest or trade even, uh, using leverage is a telltale way to blow up and, and to lose everything. And you have to be, you know, and, and you basically get knocked out of the game, right? So you got to stay in the game so you can learn that that's really the, the thing. And again, that's, that's a lesson you can learn by reading that book, Market Wizards, is that all but one of the great investors in that book and traders in that book went to zero at one point lost everything in their trading account. Um, so if you can, you know, that there's a fatalist aspect of that, which is almost you have to do it to, in order to learn from it. Uh, I think it was Bruce Kovner was the only one that didn't. Um, but so that's the first one. L learn your mistakes so you're not going to lose everything. Um, the second thing is to be systematic about it. Learn a process. Learn what works for you mentally. Don't try to do what other people do. You can sample what other people do, but you have to figure out how your own um, emotions work relative to engaging in this process and learning risk management, figuring out how to avoid the big mistakes. And that that's really, um, you know, th th that, that would be, and then the other stuff's just basic, like, you know, live below your means. This is not even investment stuff. This is basic, you know, financial life stuff, which is save. Um, get your spending down where you can save, pay yourself first, as they say, you know, get out of debt, reduce your personal financial risk um, so that you have the, the resources to be able to take advantage of and, and, and do the learning that you need to do um, as you navigate. This is going to be an epic period to learn. Um, and, and I think if you go into it with that mindset as a young investor or a new investor, um, and be open-minded about that. You'll learn all kinds of things in this environment that are vitally important. Preferably, not blowing yourself up would be a good one, um, because you, you'll learn the smell, taste, and feel of when things are going wrong and really bad. And that'll help you then in the future maybe see that coming, um, uh, because it, it, avoiding the big mistakes and the huge drawdowns—that's the formula for big time wealth accumulation outside of entrepreneurial stuff or, you know, happening and have domain expertise and investing in, you know, Amazon in 1998, that kind of thing. Like that does happen. And there are people that are very good at that or get lucky, uh, some mix of the, of the two. Um, but as a more systematic way, I, I think that's, those are the things that people can do. Yeah, exactly. And I, I really appreciate that advice. And I think the listeners will will take that to heart. And uh, yeah, it'll help them out in a time like this. So you've been very generous with your time. Um, so I really appreciate you coming out and coming on the show. Why don't you tell everybody, you know, what the, uh, what you got going on and where they can find you? Yeah, so it's real simple. Um, at Kfabe Capital is the Twitter handle. And uh, there's a link there if you if you search on uh, Substack, the, the name of the newsletter is The Worked Shoot. And that is a, again, that's a play on this idea of, of kayfabe and professional wrestling. Um, I've been trying to publish weekly. Again, I'm doing this as kind of just a hobby to try and help people out. Um, so it's free. You're, you know, 
no obligation other than wasting your time reading what I write. Um, so yeah, that's it. Don't be modest. That's a, it's a great Substack. I've read through, uh, you know, a, f- a few of the articles and it's, it's great as always. And he puts uh, a lot of time and effort into them and yeah, hopefully you uh, come out to some more of the spaces. I always enjoy seeing you on there and uh, yeah, thanks for coming out. Thanks for having me.